And we're going to read from Luke 24, verse 33, to the end. First of all, it just comes in at the part where two disciples have, have journeyed off to Emmaus. They've encountered Jesus, risen again. They return uh, to Jerusalem. That's where we pick up the story from verse 33. They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. And there they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, It is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you see I have. When he said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, Do you have anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. He said to them, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, This is what is written the Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I'm going to send you what my Father has promised. But stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. When he had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. And while he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. Then they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they stayed continually at the temple, praising God. Luke here then is reaching the conclusion of his gospel account. His um, account of the, the life, the ministry, and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And indeed, at the very end there, his ascension as well. As he draws this book to a close, he wants to draw our attention to what really did happen to Jesus. That he was raised again to new life. And after spending time with his disciples, he then ascended into glory. But also, Luke wants to draw our attention to what happened to his disciples. We have often seen before that they have misunderstood things, misunderstood the things that he's said. We've seen them make mistakes. We've seen them sink down into gloom and despair as they try and come to terms with the fact that Jesus has been executed. They have significant doubts. And even possibly they've been in danger of drifting away altogether before they realize that Jesus has indeed been raised from death. However, this kind of final scene in Luke presents us with something very different. It's almost like a, a massive before and after. And before these verses that we've read, the disciples, they do misunderstand. They have been in a kind of a gloomy pit of despair. They've had significant doubts about what's happened to Jesus. They've been in danger of drifting away. And 
that's where they are as we kind of get to verse 33. However, there's a massive shift in these verses to a more glorious after, a before and after, which leaves them unrecognizable, really. And Luke wants to draw that to our attention. And he wants to draw our attention, first of all, to, to this. That whereas to begin with, beforehand, the disciples had significant doubts, now they are fully convinced. They are convinced of Christ's resurrection. It takes them a little while. We read in verse 37 that when Jesus appears amongst them, they're startled and frightened. This is not something that they were expecting. And Jesus indeed uh, says to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts rise in your minds? He could tell that was the situation for them. They, they were troubled by this. They were doubts. Perhaps the, the only way in which they could understand what they were seeing before their eyes was to, was to think that Jesus was more like a ghost who'd come to haunt them than a living saviour who was really stood amongst them, who was there to bless them. And so they are frightened. That's where, that's where they're at. That's where their faith is at. Startled, frightened, troubled, doubting. Even in verse 41, describes here a kind of a curious mix of, of, of kind of fear, as we've just been hearing, but then faith as well. Belief is starting to kind of win the tug of war. The evidence is starting to mount up. But really, they're still uncertain. So it's bizarre that it says it was because of joy and amazement that they didn't yet believe that it really was him. They were beginning to feel excited, but even that was kind of mixed or tinged with doubts and uncertainties. Is it really him? They literally do not believe their eyes. And to, to help them through, Jesus conducts what I think is the most wonderful show and tell. Do you ever remember those show and tell time? This is show and tell with Jesus. First of all, Jesus shows them substantial evidence that it really is him. He speaks with them. He invites them to look at his hands and feet where the where the nails have pierced him. Presumably he is showing them the wounds that held him to the cross. This really is him. He invites them to touch him, to show that he really is flesh and bone and, and not a ghost, not just some kind of hallucination they all manage to have at the same time. No, he really is stood there amongst them in the flesh. And then he shows them his wounded hands. He invited them to look at them before, but maybe because presumably they were again slow on the uptake, he actually directs their attention again. Look, look, actually, here they are. He shows them his wounded hands and feet. And then he asks for something to eat. The risen Lord Jesus was a bit peckish. He wanted something to eat. Broiled fish is available. That might be his kind of dish of choice. Who knows? But he, he eats in front of them. And so it kind of, the evidence is mounting up. And the disciples are experiencing firsthand, he really is amongst them. But Jesus doesn't just show them, he doesn't just leave it to that firsthand experience, because perhaps later down the line they, they could come to doubt those experiences. He doesn't just show, he shows and he tells. And so he goes on to say to them in verse 44, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled 
that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Interestingly, that phrase there, the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms, was the way in which the Jews collected the uh, their Old Testament scriptures. Obviously, they didn't call it the Old Testament because they didn't have the New Testament. Um, the Jewish scriptures were arranged in that fashion. The law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. And therefore, Jesus is taking them through the entire scripture. He's taking them through what we have as the entire Old Testament. And he's showing them how in book after book after book after book, he has just fulfilled or what has just been written about, what has written about him has now been fulfilled in his death and resurrection. What's remarkable is actually this is not the first time that Jesus has said these kind of things. Uh, there's quite a few examples in Luke where uh, before his death and resurrection, he said something similar. So we might turn, for example, to uh, Luke chapter 18 and verse 31. And we see there a, a very similar conversation playing out. Jesus took the twelve aside and told them, we're going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He'll be handed over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him, spit on him, flog him and kill him. On the third day, he will rise again. But note this, it goes on to say, the disciples did not understand any of this. It's meaning was hidden from them, and they did not know what he was talking about. And we see similar conversations taking place in Luke chapter 9. We won't turn there right now, but a number of occasions through the course of this gospel, Luke wants to draw our attention to the fact that disciples really didn't get it. Similar teaching, but they were completely baffled. The difference is here, Jesus opened their minds so they could understand the Scriptures. Sometimes, I wonder, for us, we can hear the same scripture time and time again, but not grasp the truth, not grasp really the, the kind of potent message that God wants to bring into our lives. And there are occasions when we need to have the eyes of our hearts opened to what is true so that we really might understand what reality is. Again, we've had this intriguing before and after. Before, we've seen how the disciples were scared. They'd gathered together. We know from Luke's account of this very same incident that they were actually locked. The, the doors of the house were locked. They were in fear that the Jews would come and cause trouble and uh, persecute and execute them as well. They had doubts. Their faith was extremely fragile but then Jesus opened their minds, and now they really understand. Now they have become utterly convinced that their Savior, their leader, was very much alive and as active as ever he was before. Jesus was there. He spoke. He stood among them. He ate with them. He taught them just like before. But now he was free from any limitation. He could appear behind locked doors. He could promise to send power upon them, such as they hadn't experienced before. And no longer would Jesus tire or need a rest. No longer would he fall asleep on a boat from exhaustion. No longer would he be restricted to just one place. That was the case for them. And the same 
is now true for us. Jesus is alive. He is active in the same ways that he was when he walked on the earth. He speaks to us. He teaches us. He comes among us by his presence. He directs our lives. He heals the sick. He frees people from satanic oppression. He reaches out and changes people's lives. He loves the outcast, just as he did when he walked on the earth. He forgives the sinner, just as ever he did. And he transforms the self-righteous. And now that he's been raised from the dead, Jesus, our Savior, never needs to sleep or recharge. He's never vulnerable or weak. He is God. He is powerful. He is full of grace and compassion. He comes among us with peace. That's what he said to disciples as soon as he met with them. Peace be with you. A typical greeting of the day, but actually also a powerful message they needed to hear because they were fearful and they were doubting. He comes with peace and he does the same to us now. The disciples still doubting and perhaps even rightly described as broken-hearted. We had that, that word come that, that Ian just shared with us earlier on, just feeling that God wants to bring our attention to this. We can come just feeling broken-hearted. Well, what does God do? He steps amongst us, anointed by the Spirit of God, and he says, peace be with you. Peace to us. And he's right here with us now. The issue is, the question is, are we convinced? Have our eyes been opened to this? So sad to hear sometimes of people who may say, well, I've heard it all before. I'm, I'm fully aware of this particular passage of Scripture. I needn't hear it again. Um, and sometimes that can be our attitude. You think that's really something we need to check ourselves and guard ourselves from. We never want to arrive at the point where God's Word just becomes kind of dry facts, glib phrases, a collection of boring principles. Does God still surprise you? Can God still grab your attention by His Word? Are there occasions when, like the two who were on the road to Emmaus, uh, we can say, were our hearts not burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? Or have we just settled for a slight hardness that says, I've heard it all before. I, I'm aware of the facts. I know the information. This is nothing new to me. Do we dare to believe for anything that is out of the ordinary humdrum? Or is life just ticking over with a dead saviour somewhere in a book on our shelves. The apostles became utterly convinced of the resurrection of Jesus. We see this in the book of Acts, which is almost Luke's sequel to this gospel here. And we see in, in Luke 22 how when they were preaching, uh, Peter, example, when Peter was preaching um, to Jews in Jerusalem, the very centerpiece, as it were, of this message and what this message was, um, the, the confidence that this message came with, was very much based on the fact Jesus was resurrected. Jesus is alive. And so in Acts 2, verse 32, 
Peter, kind of reaching the crescendo of his message, says, God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of the fact. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. That was the, the boldness of their message. They therefore prayed with great boldness as well. We see that a few chapters further on in Acts chapter 4, verse 29, uh, for example. Um, if I can indeed find it myself. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. They are praying to God in the confidence that comes from knowing that Jesus is alive. And so it characterizes their prayers. They are expecting God to do the impossible. They are expecting God to do the miraculous. They're expecting themselves, therefore, to kind of almost walk on the top of impossibilities. Well, that shouldn't happen. But actually, we're praying to a God that raised Jesus from the grave. I think anything is possible. They were fully convinced and unrecognizable from before. That's what Luke wants to draw our attention to. They were convinced. He also wants us to realize, secondly, that these disciples were commissioned to be his witnesses. Luke is keen to leave us with the impression this is not the end of something, but rather this is a new beginning. The focus shifts from what has happened, what has taken place, to what will happen. So Jesus, as he is opening their minds to the scriptures, says in verse 46, this is, what written, this is what was written, the Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. These are the things that have happened. Jesus then goes on to say, and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And there's a similar flavor when we see in, um, in Matthew and John how they kind of recall Uh, Jesus commissioning his disciples, saying things like, as the Father sent me into the world, so I am now sending you. Or in Matthew, therefore go and make disciples. There's this forward-looking emphasis, this massive uh, commission that now these disciples are going to be involved in. They are going to be involved preaching repentance and forgiveness of sins to all nations. Yes, they're to, they're to begin in uh, Jerusalem, beginning with their kind of more familiar surrounding, more familiar culture. But actually, the, the mission, the commission, is going far beyond that to, to all the nations. A massive, massive task. That raises a very interesting question. How? How on earth were the disciples expected to carry out this commission? The task was huge, especially for men who were uh, very aware of their very recent failings. Think of a guy like Peter, who would kind of boldly proclaimed, I'll never deny you, I'll never desert you. He's in a, he's in a position to stand up and speak for Jesus. And he denies him 
He denies knowing him three times. Well, that was, that was Peter's experience. But all of them, men and women, none of them could say uh, with great confidence, yes, we're, we're able to carry this out. Uh, we're fully qualified now um, to carry out this great um, international mission. Yet international travel, that's something that we're very, very familiar with. Uh, public speaking, we've been doing that for a long time now. Yes, thank you, Jesus. The baton's handed on. We're ready. We're off. Um, could they be that confident? They're convinced. But how could they be that confident? And the same is true for us today. We could perhaps be very convinced of the facts. But perhaps like these disciples feel very timid if anyone actually questions us on our faith or if we're in a position to share our faith with others. The disciples themselves, the apostles rather, they, if we read on in Acts, we see that they were ridiculed, they were threatened. We might not be so often physically threatened or imprisoned, but we could certainly expect to encounter a little bit of, of ridicule here and there. But these apostles were nevertheless confident. Why? Why was that? How was that? Well, I believe it's because this. This massive commission that Jesus gave them was accompanied by an equally massive and wonderful promise. And so he goes on to say in verse 49, I'm going to send you what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. A massive commission is accompanied by a massive promise. Promise. If they were to be confident, it was that Jesus had promised this. That he was going to send what my Father has promised. And then uses that expression also, that they were, they were going to expect to be clothed with power from on high. That, a fascinating way of describing what it would be like to have the Holy Spirit come upon them and fill them. I wonder who here is, uh, is familiar or a fan of, uh, Wallace and Gromit. Any uh, particular fans? Well, well, just a few hands, so this illustration could bomb. Um, If you're not familiar with Wallace and Gromit, it's almost Christmas, so you're bound to see it on the telly before uh, before too much longer. Personally, I feel that the plasticine has never been so entertaining. Now, one of the Wallace and Gromit films was the, uh, The Wrong Trousers. It's one of the older ones. It's going back a few years. In the wrong trousers, this is just a recap for those who might not be familiar, there is, plasticine of course, a maverick penguin who attempts to steal a priceless diamond from a high security uh, museum uh, by trapping the lead character, Wallace, who's an ingenious um, inventor, in his most recent invention, which is the wrong trousers, or his techno trousers. These are trousers that he can, he can put on and kind of manage to then walk up walls and over ceilings uh, and down the other side. Um, the dastardly penguin um, works out that he can operate these trousers by remote control and he sets about his evil plan. So Wallace is wearing the trousers, but because he's asleep, he's completely unaware of it to begin with. And even after he wakes up, He has no control over where those trousers are taking him. To this museum, carefully 
planned route, um, avoiding all security devices in which the penguin can capture, can, uh, can steal the priceless diamond. The penguin is in charge. Wallace is just a passenger, clothed with power. There's a link. See if you get this one. Um, <laughs> what does it mean to be clothed with power? Is it, I hear you ask, like being clothed with Wallace's techno trousers? In other words, God's in control. He's not an evil penguin, by the way. God's in control, and he takes us wherever he wants to. We are asleep, or even if we are awake and aware of it, we have kind of nothing to, to do. Uh, we are kind of overpowered, as it were, and so we're left without any control. We are just, ho- uh, we're just passengers um, as the Holy Spirit takes over. Being clothed with power from on high by the Holy Spirit is not like being forced to wear the wrong trousers like Wallace. God did not call his disciples nor us to just be helpless passengers in his kingdom, just passively seeing what God wants to do next. God chose to clothe them with power from on high. And what that means is, it's still the disciples choosing to move. It's still them choosing to to walk around. It's still them choosing to speak and to act. It's still them uh, making decisions. It's it's still them uh, going about their lives. They haven't been taken over. However, they have been given something to wear that gives them power they wouldn't otherwise have had. And when I was young, when I was um, growing up, I, I, uh, I was growing up uh, at a time when Bon Jovi used to backcomb their hair, and uh, and that was considered fashionable. And um, and because because my brother in the late 80s was incredibly fashionable, he bought uh, cowboy boots um, with long hair. It's not a problem. And a leather jacket that had tassels all the way down the arms and behind and along the other arms. And to me, that was just ever so desirable and cool. I wanted to be clothed with that. And then I would imagine walking around with great confidence. It would still be me, but I had the jacket on. Um, maybe stretching it a little bit. But here, the disciples, they are, they're not being taken over. They're not being kind of controlled by remotes. Uh, They're being clothed with something. It's still them walking around, but they have the confidence of knowing they've been clothed with power from God. God provides his Holy Spirit to uh, resource them and to strengthen them. They weren't to carry out this commission just um, with their own meager resources. They had this promise that God was going to enable them to carry out what he just commissioned them to do. So what about us? We helpless passengers, do we feel perhaps um, apprehensive or nervous about what it might mean to be clothed with power from on high? Because surely we don't really want to just be completely taken over. In order to see what this means, I think also it's helpful to, to look at Luke chapter 11 and how the Holy Spirit is described there and the way in which God, our Heavenly Father, gives to us. It says in, in Luke 11 and verse 11, Jesus teaching his disciples there, it says, which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? 
If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? And as that last sentence works out, you might expect it to say, um, if you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who seek him? Well, in a sense, it is saying that the Holy Spirit is a really, really good gift. God coming to us, clothing us with power we wouldn't otherwise have. Our Heavenly Father is infinitely better than any human father, and He is not going to try and trick us by giving us a snake or a scorpion when we ask for the Holy Spirit. And so the Holy Spirit, God Himself coming to us, an amazingly good gift with which He wants to bless us, and also through us, wants to bless the world. So we are not helpless passengers being taken over as part of some dastardly plan. On the other hand, for some we might not be apprehensive about what it means to be clothed with power. We might actually quite like the idea of being taken over, like with those techno trousers, because then obviously everything would just be effortless. And we could just go along for the ride. We would be passengers seeing what God wants to do, um, but just that, not really directly involved. Well, again, it's important to see that God clothes us. He doesn't coerce us. He's not wanting to operate us by remote control. He wants to partner with us, help us, strengthen us with a godly boldness and with courage so that we're not easily intimidated by threats or ridicule, but it's still us. It's still us walking around. It's still us talking. It's still us making decisions. It's still us going about life, but clothed with power that we wouldn't otherwise have. The encouragement for us is that God helps us by His Spirit to do whatever He calls us to do. And there is a massive commission from Him that we all have a part within to play. He doesn't call us and not resource us. He doesn't just leave us to make do with our own power. Clothing from heaven is available. But the question is, again at this point, do you have it? Or have you received it, but you've forgotten you're wearing it? In either case, whether you would identify a point in your own personal history where you felt, yes, Definitely and tangibly, at that point in my life, it was, oh God, just clothed me in power I didn't have before. I found within me a fresh courage and confidence to to share my faith or to speak out. It might be that we can identify such a point as that in our lives. It might be that we can't. Well, either way, the point is, right here and now, are we believing for power? Are we believing to be strengthened by Almighty God? Are we believing that it is God's plan and purpose that we should tangibly know the encouragement of having God's Spirit clothe us and be with us? In Acts 1 verse 8 we see there as well how Jesus promised, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And that power was going to be what would enable them to witness the disciples believed, and later 
they were most definitely to receive. Do we believe? Are our expectations laced with the prospect of receiving from God power that we don't have? We can be very aware, like these disciples, very aware of our own failings or weaknesses, of our own timidity in the face of opportunity when it comes to sharing our faith, even if it's just kind of chatting to a neighbor, chatting to a colleague, just some very simple kind of low-level discussion. Um, Even in those situations, we can be very aware of our weaknesses or our failings. Let's also be even more aware of the promises Jesus made to his disciples in the Scripture to clothe us with power. Not just building ourselves up, not just kind of finding something within us, but no, finding him, being clothed with him, and therefore receiving a confidence we might not naturally identify as our own. I can't believe I just said that. I can't believe I've just invited that person to to come to this. I can't believe I was so bold as to let this person know that I'm going to be praying for them. Indeed, would they like me to pray with them right now? Because an opportunity has presented itself in that way. I can't believe that, you know, someone was kind of almost ridiculing the Christian faith and saying, I can't believe in God raising someone from the dead. And I, I found myself just confidently turning just to a simple passage and saying, well, actually, this is what the scripture says. And how could you kind of make this stuff up? The disciples were left, right and center, pointing out in the scriptures that we've now got before us, how very doubting they were. How did they suddenly discover confidence in a God who died? We can know a confidence that we might not readily identify as our own. Well, I'm a quieter character. I, I tend to be more introvert. I mean, I put my hand up and say that. Um, and, and so I, I don't kind of just barge into conversations. I can't really do that. Well, you don't have to, but you can still be clothed with power from on high. So when the opportunities are available, think, I'm, I'm ready. It's still you deciding. It's still, it's still us making a decision. I can choose to speak or not to. I can choose to uh, open my mouth or be quiet. I'm going to choose. I don't know what I'm going to say, but God, would you come and help me right now because I really feel nervous. And God says, yes, because that's what I promised to do and that's what I've done for the disciples in the Scriptures. So we can be, like the disciples, confident in the commission we have because we've got this wonderful promise that God clothes us with power from on high. So the disciples, in these last verses of Luke, they are convinced of Jesus' resurrection. They are commissioned to be his witnesses. They are confident in that commission, as we go on to see. And thirdly, we also see that they are joyful. Uh, They are joyful in worship and praise. It's fascinating uh, that actually, or it's very understandable perhaps, as we've been going through the events of the Easter weekend, there hasn't been much joy on the surface. There hasn't been much kind of obvious joy. The last time joy gets mentioned in the book of Luke, I think, is in chapter 19, uh, where Jesus is coming into um, Jerusalem. And in verse 37, it says, When he came near the place where the road goes down, Uh, the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. That was the last time in the book of Luke that joy 
gets a mention. Ever since there, that joy gets mightily squashed by the fact that Jesus was um, crucified and their Savior um, died. As we've said before, initially they didn't know what to make of that. So joy hasn't been around for a while. Instead, on the surface, events have seemed mainly bleak. God's plan of salvation has been steadily unfolding, but it has involved sorrow, grief, and hostility. However, as this book reaches its conclusion, the disciples are now full of joy. We kind of see it beginning to emerge in verse 41, where there's this still, still this odd mix of faith and fear. Um, and there's a kind of a joy and amazement that has um, begun to bubble up, even though at that point they're still not completely convinced. Joy has begun to, to rise up. By verse 52, it's great joy. It's great joy. Well, it's obviously going to be great joy, isn't it? Because Jesus has risen from the dead, and he's spent time with them, and he's taught them, and he's, he's shown himself in remarkable ways. Jesus is alive. They've got great joy. It stands to reason. Interestingly, though, verse 52, they've got great joy after Jesus has ascended into heaven. Does that seem a little bit strange? Because it's like this. Imagine saying goodbye to your closest friend, let's say, who also, in some respects, has like been a mentor to you, someone, someone to look up to, someone to learn from, someone that you admire and you respect, someone that you'd very much like to emulate in your life. I'd like to be like this person, but they've got to say goodbye. I wonder what it was like for Elisha saying goodbye to Elijah. He, he wanted to be like Elijah. He, he wanted a double portion, in fact. What was it, what was it like for him to, to kind of say goodbye to his mentor? What would it be like for us in that situation? These disciples, they'd walked with Jesus, they'd talked with him, they'd learnt from him, they'd gained valuable insight and faith and courage, they'd seen his leadership, they'd been just blessed, they'd, they were friends together. And so obviously conversation would be uh, characterised by humour as well as seriousness. Now, well, it's come to the time to say goodbye. Is that a happy experience? Or is that the one that might leave them or might leave us in a similar situation feeling a bit forlorn? Well, what now? But there doesn't seem to be this reaction among his disciples as they watch him ascend into heaven. They had had a time of great sorrow and grief. After Jesus' death on the cross, they're devastated. They're sorrowful. They're despondent. Their hearts have been broken. They're in danger, perhaps, of drifting or of being overwhelmed by doubts. However, here... The image couldn't be more different. Luke leaves us with this image of the disciples worshipping Jesus, returning to Jerusalem with great joy and praising God in the temple. They're convinced of Jesus' resurrection. They've met him. He's opened their minds to what was always there in the scriptures, but now they have eyes to see. They've been commissioned and they're now about to embark on an exciting new mission, a new adventure, and they're anticipating receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit. Jesus has appeared to them numerous times, and they are witnesses of him raising up 
to heaven. So why, why did Jesus ascend? Why, why are we told? Why did it happen that Jesus left them in that way? He'd appeared and disappeared a few times. Why did he not just disappear again, but just for the last time? I think the ascension there, at the very end of Luke's gospel, is to leave us in no doubt of what the disciples were in no doubt of. Who Jesus is and where he was going. He didn't mysteriously disappear, leaving his disciples to wonder what had happened. He's their king who had ascended and is now enthroned in heaven, exalted above all other rule and authority. They were no longer going to see him in the flesh before them, but in fact they could look forward to knowing him more intimately and actually working with him more closely than ever they had before. This was a time of great joy because it wasn't really a time of saying goodbye at all because it wasn't really the end. I suppose we could describe it as the end of Jesus' earthly ministry in the flesh. But really, also, it was the beginning of an exciting new era, an era that we are a part of, which is why we have as much reason to be convinced of the resurrection as the apostles. We have the same commission that they had. We can have the same confidence they had in the same promise that God clothes us with power from on high. We can know also the same joy that our King has ascended into the highest place, far above all other rule and authority. Jesus is our King, and at this very moment, He's both present with us by His Spirit and enthroned in glory, where we'll be one day as well. Intermittently, in life, there's bound to be situations in which we have cause for sorrow, or for grief, or even for doubts like these disciples experienced. However, for us now, it shouldn't be that that's the default setting, that that's, that's the norm, kind of regardless of what's going on in life. We just feel baffled and sorrowful, weighed down, heavy-hearted, a bit hopeless, a bit just feeling weak. That's not the norm that the disciples were into, there will understandably be occasions where we grieve, where we, we kind of wonder or we puzzle at something. But actually, our Savior is alive. He rose from the grave. He, op- he opens our minds to the Scripture. He has commissioned us. We can have confidence because the Holy Spirit is with us and we can receive power when He clothes us. And our King is on the throne. He is on the throne. A question I asked earlier on is this. Are we convinced? Are we persuaded? Is, is this kind of running through our lives and our faith? Who do you most associate with? Do you associate, do we associate with the disciples before this encounter with Jesus or after it? Do we most associate 
with the disciples in their doubts and their despair or in their confidence and in their faith? Do we most kind of identify with, with, kind of, um, with Jesus only of the crucifixion, Jesus only of the cross, man of sorrows? Oh, we, we do associate with Jesus in that sense, but are we, a, are, we, are, we, are we daily living in a sense that Jesus is not only the man who died on the cross, but he's the man who rose to new life? Have have the eyes of our hearts been opened that that power that raised Jesus from the tomb is at work amongst us? Is that the kind of the the, the confidence? Is that the boldness of our message in life? Does that flavor our prayers? That there are occasions like the disciples or like the apostles in Acts when we just say, Oh, sovereign Lord, stretch out your hand to heal and do miraculous signs and wonders in the name of your servant, our Savior, the King over everything, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's allow today our hearts to be opened, our eyes to be opened. If there's any occasion where we just think, oh God, actually, would you just come to open my eyes today? I'm kind of convinced of the facts, but it feels like I'm not living in the confidence in these truths that I should know. Let's pray. We're going to worship God and there will be an opportunity to respond in just a moment.